0: listener
1: production. Everyone relax. This is Will Anderson, uh, host of Willosophy with Will Anderson, which is the podcast that you are listening to right now. I welcome you to this podcast if it's your first time. Hello. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. Everything is now in the Everyone Relax feed. Now, if you're a regular Willosophy listener, nothing much has changed for you other than the name of the podcast feed in which you are listening to this, you haven't had to subscribe to anything new. But the old philosophy feed has now been rebranded. Everyone, relax. You might have noticed that and not understood what is going on. So here is what is going on all the podcasts that Charlie and I make, TOEFOP. Faux Fault, which got rebranded as Toe with Friends, but our footy podcast, Cricket, Charlie's uh, Unexplained, Explained, and all the other various series that we tend to do were in places far and wide. And so we decided the best thing would be to have them all in the one feed. That means that if you maybe attempted to sample one of the other shows... It would be easy for you to do, but if you are not tempted to sample any of the other shows and you would like to just listen to the philosophy episodes, they are all still going to be clearly marked philosophy. You can take half a second to flip through to the next philosophy episode, and it shouldn't affect your life too much, but it will make things very simple for us uh, in the way that we make all our shows, and it will mean that you will probably get more consistently reliable Episodes of philosophy published. So, even though you don't really have to do anything other than perhaps flick through a few shows that you don't want to listen to, I would recommend having a listen to some of them. I think if you like this show, then I think there are other shows that we make that you would also like. But if you don't, if you just want to listen to philosophy, and that is fine, uh, all you need to do is flick through to the next episode. That is all that will change for you. But it will mean that there will be weekly Willosophy episodes for all of this year. And it also means that there might even be some bonus Willosophy episodes at some time. So even though there is nothing that you really need to do if you're a regular subscriber to this feed other than keep subscribing, uh, there will be bonus flow-on effects for you, the regular Willosophy listeners. So there you go. That's the changes that have been made. That's a little explanation of what you might have seen Uh, look a little different in your podcast feed. Philosophy continues. It will continue. Uh, This move means that it's actually more likely to be consistently (laughs) continuing. Uh, So it's a win if you're a philosophy fan, Uh, but it does mean that the feed that you listen to philosophy in has been renamed. There you go. I think I've explained that. I think I've over explained that, let's be honest, but this is the first time that I've talked today. And one of the very few times that I've talked this year, so I'm going to do this little introduction, and then I actually have to drive to Newcastle. Uh, I'm in Newcastle the next three nights doing my improvised show, What You Talking About Will?, and then on Saturday at the Sydney Comedy Store, I'm doing that also. I don't know why I'm telling you that, because... Those shows are all sold out, but I am doing some more of those shows in Newcastle in February. Some of those are already sold out as well, but if you're in Newcastle and you want to come along to the Newcastle Comedy Club and see what you're talking about, Will, in February, there are still some tickets available at the time of me recording this. And if you're in Port Macquarie, I will be at the Glasshouse Theatre. Oh, yes, I know. I used to have a TV show called The Glasshouse, and I will be performing at the Glasshouse Theatre in Port Macquarie doing my improvised show there as well. Uh, I think that's February the... 3rd, February the 3rd, February the 2nd or February the 3rd, anyway, you'll you'll be able to work it out, Port Macquarie, uh, that's already over half sold out, so if you wanted tickets to that as well, I would recommend getting in quick for that. Uh, Once February, January and February are done, then uh, the brand new tour, Will Legitimate, starts and that tour is going to go for, well, my aim is, my hope is, you know, you can be full of aims and hopes in, in January when you haven't started doing the show yet. But my aim and hope is that it's going to be my biggest tour, uh, well for at least five years, but possibly my biggest tour in maybe a decade, because what I'm hoping to do is spend a lot of time in Australia, uh, in 2024, taking the show to as many places as possible. So there's a whole bunch of places that are already on sale. But, um, if you want to on my socials, uh, when I post, Leave details of where you are and where you would like me to bring the show to. I won't be able to go to all of those places, but I am always open to suggestion, and we're going to try and add some more dates around my pre existing commitments. And uh, then in 2025, I am hoping that I might be able to take the show internationally. So if you're in the rest of the world, now is the time to put your hand up because some of that stuff takes a fair amount of advanced planning. So uh, the show is called Will Legitimate, it debuts in Adelaide, as always, at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. That's, that's normally where I go to work out what the show is. So the good people of Adelaide, uh, you have the first chance to see what it is that I will be talking about. At the moment, well, what I think the show is about is uh, last year I found out something about my father that I did not know. And I've written a show around that. Well, not just around that, but that is the... The starting idea of the show, and then it goes to a whole bunch of different places. And I'm sure uh, by the time that I've done it for a while, it'll go to a whole bunch of different places. So uh, anyway, I'm not going to ramble too much about that. But it is called Will Legitimate. It is on sale in a whole bunch of places in Australia. Please come out and see the show. Today's episode of Philosophy was with Josh Gondelman. I'm a really big fan of Josh Gondelman. Really fantastic uh, comedy writer and stand-up comedy writer. I really enjoyed Josh's albums that I've been listening to quite a lot. I speak about that in this podcast that we recorded late last year. And uh, also Josh posts a lot of his material online on social media. I'm not very much on social media anymore, but Josh has a newsletter that you can subscribe to, which I have done. And it's fantastic. If you're a fan of Josh's writing and you want it delivered regularly, into your inbox without you having to search through the social media feeds and algorithms to find Josh's stuff. I highly recommend that you sign up to that also. We talk about that a little bit in this show as well. So without any further ado, because that's been enough ado, <laughs> it's been plenty of ado so far. Uh, so let's get on with the episode. This is Josh Josh Gondelman Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So, who are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I am uh, Josh
0: Gondelman. I, we're getting deep already. Who are you is like such a heavy way to start. I am uh, a comedian and a comedy writer. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father to an elderly pug and also a grandson to that pug. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, that's me. I'm a, from, from the Boston area originally, I've lived in New York for a long time and I uh, write and tell jokes. Do
1: you know my favorite thing, Josh is, is not, it doesn't really matter what people say to that question, but I love how they answer it Mm -hmm. because how they answer it just says so much about them. And here's what I got from you. Firstly, very polite, good manners, said hello to everybody, you know, welcome to the show, didn't just jump in. Secondly, really gave me a lot of information. Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: like, I'm very talkative, I will go, I'll go along on any question. You asked three words, who are you? And I was like, oh, I've written a book about it, you're going to hear it now.
1: <laughs> um, well thank you for doing the show, I really appreciate you being on. Like I first, this I, this is the first time I believe that we've had a conversation, well face to face, we I think We're that's probably right, yeah but uh i first met you online but c- became a great fan of your stand up albums i've been oh, going thank through you. a period of time where I love comedy specials, like filmed, you know, recorded, you know, specials. There's something about watching somebody on that big screen. I think partly because, and I've done that myself, by the way, which is that if you're going to do, like, go to the effort of filming a show, then you do it in a big theater and you make it a big spectacle. And it seems that you should do that. It loses something of the comedy experience to me. And so I've been going through a period where I've been diving back into the world of, comedy albums recorded in smaller clubs with a better rhythm for comedy, just much more enjoyable to, to listen to. And to, anyway, you've got a bunch of comedy albums that are available. They're all fantastic. You're such a, um, delicate, hilarious joke writer. That's what I love about your choice of words, your choice of topics, the way you construct a joke. Like, was it jokes? that got you into comedy in the first place. Yeah.
0: I really do love jokes. Like I like the storytelling part of it, Mm. but at my heart and and coming from the Boston scene where it's just like joke, joke, joke. I really got that like instilled in me early. That's like, okay, if you're going to like tell a narrative, it better have 1 million jokes or else the audience will not only get bored. They will hate you. (laughs) They'll actively hate you.
1: It's so true though, because you have such a gift for, telling a story letting us know who you are what your life is like what your perspective is on things but they are individually crafted jokes like comedy jokes proper old school you could write it down see the construction you know the the thought that has gone into it the word choice like they feel labored over in the right way. Thank Not you. that they feel labored, but they feel like the work has gone into picking exactly what the right word is or the right way to say it. I really love that. And I love like thinking about on a sentence level, the
0: way like you can choose a word with a little more intent and get a little more out of it. Right. Or you can eliminate a couple words or you can say th- something slightly wrong and and have that be the joke. And like, there's just so many, there's so much possibility. It's like, kind of infinite. And, and you can go crazy with that. Or you could look at it as like a playground, right. For like, Oh, I could do whatever I want. Any, all this is like tillable soil.
1: (laughs) I like first discovered you, uh, as a comedian, as a writer on Twitter, like, you know, well, the, the, the site, the hell site formerly known as Twitter. I've been, (laughs) off i've been off social media for about a year now wow. like my avatar still exists you know there's somebody else is doing it on my behalf nice. but i uh, i ghosted social media i did not leave how, i ghosted how does that i didn't feel? tell anybody i was oh, amazing oh. it's the best but the thing that i do miss is that I don't get to necessarily discover people that I'm not seeing, you know, on the Australian comedy scene or even the international scene that I was. And and Twitter was great for that. How active are you these days? Because for someone like you who has that skill and construction to be able to put together a joke that would be perfect for a site like Twitter, uh, are you still there? How have you dealt with the fact that it's become this horrible place? Like, what's? I'm still there and I don't,
0: Love it, like it's just worse. Like it's like you know how sometimes you go to this restaurant that
1: you love, and then it's under new management, and the oh, food is I'm sorry, josh oh, sorry. I told you my dog was gonna That's bark okay. and want to get on the couch. I'm gonna have to do it. At least it's early in the podcast, Take your time. and then it'll be done. <laughs> Uh, regular listeners to this podcast know that at some <laughs> stage in every one of these shows there is a period where I have to stop doing it to help my dog who is an elderly dog Aww. up onto the couch how, she can't How get old is the your dog anymore. Well she's just about to turn 13 mm. but she's a french bulldog so for french bulldogs that is Right, that's, that's it. That's, that's like record yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, might. There might be a news story of mm-hmm. like, what is it? Secret? One sip of whiskey every day and a cigar on a never, never stopped smoking.
0: That's. Uh, we have a, a pug who's very elderly and the same. She needs like. She's very demanding. Where she'll come over and be like, "Hey, put me on the couch so I can rest." Yeah. like, we well, have a little bed right next to the couch. He's like, "No, yeah. that's not good
1: enough." Oh, no. She has three beds next to the couch oh, on the oh, yeah. floor. Like essentially 95% of the floor space in this house is dedicated to places she can sleep comfortably. This is very,
0: this is very relatable to how our homeless And the, the surfaces that are not designed as dog beds are human furniture covered with machine washable blankets because our dog, she'll just poop. I, I call it Shakira mode. It's just wherever, whenever. <laughs>
1: I, I will say Ramona's very good at um very to- like very toilet friendly occasionally like if if the, if I have been away for two, mm-hmm. like the dog beds might have a, like a little wee but no no poo inside very good at that at the moment okay but very much at the point now where like 95% of her time it, she would either like to be sleeping or her preference is to be sleeping absolutely under one of my arms. Like that is real. I mean... Brilliant, but impractical. Uh, you're like fine, fine for her. She's got the time. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> she doesn't have to answer emails. She yeah. doesn't have to run errands. Yeah. I've, I've learned to do a remarkable amount of things one handed. So that's so sweet. <laughs> uh, anyway, what, what, what were we, oh, Twitter we were yes. talking about. Um, yeah. So are you still there? Are you still like writing jokes for it? Like I'm still there, mm-hmm. but it, <sighs>
0: because I do still feel like it's useful for certain like uh social um interactions certain like professional connections uh and like promotion for stuff but it really like I still will post a joke occasionally and it just feels like it's less like it's a worse crowd like the room is Worse, you know, like it's like you go a certain amount of time. I was going to say like at a restaurant, right? You go to a restaurant, it's under yeah. new management. You go back. The food's still bad, but you keep showing up because you like wish it were the way it was. But it's also like you go to a comedy club that has gotten worse in quality and you go, oh, I used to love it here. They used to the audiences used to know me and know what I'm here for. And now it's like just brutal. It's like going it's going into a papered room, right? Everybody's in on free tickets. They're already drunk. It's tough. <laughs>
1: Uh, but it does suit your style like so that I mean again we're going to talk about your life and all these sort of things I'm just so interested in your comedy at the moment because I've been listening to so much of it it's actually been uh, this all you don't need to know all the details of this but life's life's just been a little challenging for me of late and the part of uh, you know when I originally became a comedian part of it was because I just loved comedy like in its capacity to take me away to a different place or like and and your style and your rhythm has been very comforting to me. Oh, like thank I've you. really enjoyed listening to you, listening to the way your albums are crafted, the way the stories are crafted. Can you I'm just curious. I don't know. I never know how much people are curious about things like process, but I'm super. Me too. Interested oh, I'm like a, I love talking so, craft.
0: I'm a freak about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Good. All right. Well, that's great. So because I do, and it's my podcast. So let's <laughs> yeah, talk you're about calling it. the shots here. <laughs> can I, so can you tell me a little bit about how you put together your jokes and how you put together a show like an album? Totally. A, you know, a special.
0: I well, I have the the albums that I've done so far. Mm have the i have three like real proper albums and they all were just kind of like i was at a point in my career where i was just kind of like i get to the new hour of material and it was like pretty it would feel like oh i think i've had all the thoughts about this part of my life that i'm gonna have and then (laughs) and i would kind of go i think we're at the stopping point like i don't think i'm gonna I think we have it all together. And then, then I would get to the point of like, okay, how do I make all this material that I've been doing around Boston, around New York on the road, hang together? What stays in, what goes out, what, what stuff doesn't quite fit that like is the kind of seed crystal for the next piece that I want to work on. But it's the last one I recorded in 2019, I think. And, and I'm, in a slightly different place in my career than I was then where now I think I could do a little more to shape something. Like I think this new hour that I'm hoping to record soon feels a little bit more of a piece and a little more thematically unified. But back when I was doing the the albums, the hour was just kind of like, this is the new this is the new hour since the last hour. And it doesn't make sense to not record it, you know, and build up a second hour that what am I, what am I doing? I'm not doing two hour shows. <laughs> so, so it helps to like put it down and be like, Oh, I'm going to leave this behind and hopefully, you know, do it, do some of the material until I've grown from that, um, sourdough starter enough that I can, I've got a new loaf. <laughs> is that, does that make sense? Uh,
1: well, yeah, that makes absolute sense, but there is, still a, a, like i mean particularly you know those last couple of albums there feels like there's a really consistent through line like you you could imagine they were conceived as yes. an entire piece and, even
0: and I- I think I've back justified. That's kind of what it is. It's like, I'm writing, I'm like kind of stewing on the same stuff. And then when I get that hour together, like as it kind of fills in, then I kind of impose the structure on it. Right. Like I I've never sat down and gone like my next hour is what it's like to be like newly married. That's what it is. But I'm going on tour. I'm like having these new experiences. I'm, this is what I'm thinking about. And, and then I go, Oh, okay. That is what this was. And, and I'm so, I'm, always like really um impressed when someone goes oh i'm i'm going to start off and call my shot like and i don't know i've never talked to him about it but like it seems like someone like Mike Berbiglia whose work i love and who i've always super looked up to starts off from a position of like this is what my next show is going to be about, or at least very early on it becomes that. And I don't decide what the show is about till the show has told me what it's about yeah. But be, be, being like, Oh, I'm listening to me. And this is what, what it was. So that's kind of the overarching structure. Um, but it is really like, it is that, that interstitial, like the cartilage comes last and it starts off as like, a joke and a joke and a joke and a joke. And then I go, Oh, I've got 12 minutes. It's all about this. And it actually, when I do that as part of this hour, it actually feels like that's, that is the thematic antecedent to this other seven minutes of stuff. And then I start building it together. So it feels like you're watching a guy talk about his life and his thoughts for an hour, instead of just a joke and a joke and a joke and a joke. So it's all, you know, it's a little bit of, um, three kids in a trench coat <laughs> <laughs> well here's
1: here's what I would say is there is a use of language the language of comedy that I find you know so comforting to listen to uh in the way that you construct it that implies to me that you grew up liking comedy but that might not yeah. be true like Oh yeah. Did, did you? I did. Yeah.
0: And I'm and like you said, like like you're saying about yourself. I think there are people who are who come to comedy that are not fans of the medium and just kind of are like, "Oh, this is something I can do, but I do really like it." Like I I grew up listening to comedy albums. I remember um my dad was a member of the whatever it was, like the BMG Music Club where they're like, "We'll send you uh, 47 cassettes or 23 CDs for a penny. And then you pay $1 million in shipping and handling. And uh, so we did that. And my dad was like, okay, do you, what do you, what do you, do you want a couple? Like, I can't, I'm not going to listen to 47 new CDs this month. And so I would occasionally ask for some music stuff, but like, I, I remember getting a bunch of comedy cassettes and like, he gave me some advice. It was like, oh, I think, I think you'd like this. He would play like Smothers brothers records in the house. And, uh, I, I, but I would go, you know, I, I got really into... I, he got me into, and this is so fraught to say now, so we don't need to really get into it, but, like, Cosby is one. Like, Cosby. Yeah, yeah, and, like, early Woody Allen. <laughs> like, that stuff that was really formative. But then even... I mean, stuff that, like, people that... Yeah were powerhouse standups that now you don't think of quite as much like I had an I had Ellen DeGeneres's comedy album I had um Jeff Foxworthy's you might be a redneck album that that like launched him into that was like went platinum um was how big his standup was and then uh Carlin obviously is like everyone you know that's not breaking any ground but like I really did I listened to it I would like listen to it with friends I had Adam Sandler's or we would listen to Adam Sandler's sketch comedy albums that were so dirty and we were really young and all my friends would one by one excuse me get Sandler's albums like confiscated (laughs) Because they were like, one adult would hear like four seconds of it, and be like, "Oh no no, this is poisoning." <laughs> you. Yeah,
1: Co- go back to Cosby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sure. There'll never, there'll, be, there'll never be something with Doctor Doctor wrong with Doctor Cosby. No, so,
0: I mean it he, really yeah. felt that way at the time. Being like, "Oh, this like my dad being like, yeah. this is something I can show to my like whatever ten year old son, and I can just give him the cassette and like let him enjoy it, and we'll talk about it later. I don't have to worry about what he's hearing on there." And now it's like, oh, boy.
1: I mean, it's so like uh, there is a, a knack that some comedians have of being able to Marie Kondo, my comedy collections by their bad deeds, where I'm just basically <laughs> like, all right, I guess all the Cosby stuff yeah, has to go. This no now. longer sparks
0: joy. <laughs> this sparks a different feeling that I don't know that we have a word for in this language.
1: <laughs> yeah, you've ruined my memories too now, Bill. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, oh, so, okay. So you grew up with that language of comedy. Totally. So when did you? Start doing it yourself. Like, when was there a time that Josh Goldman thought, oh, you know what? I could maybe try comedy. I
0: had, when I was just finishing high school, I had a friend that, that would do like a little, uh, she's like a very artsy, um, Really creative, cool friend from high school who I'm still in touch with, and she's lived all over the world now. And she w- would like get this Unitarian Church space in town and be like, "I'm just throwing like a little coffee house, and kids can like the kids we went to school with can like do their little art things." And I tried like twice there, and one time it went pretty well, and one time it went pretty bad. And I was like, "Okay, that was fun." And then about a year later, two years later, after my freshman year of college, and I d- similarly did a couple of things like an open coffee house thing on campus at, at school. And then by the time I was done with my first year in college, I had a, a friend guy that I knew through childhood friends who had started doing standup. And he, uh, was re- he's really funny. One of the funniest guys I know and who since stopped doing comedy professionally is just like a very funny lawyer now. And, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and he, our, my, my buddy Dan Levy, who I've known my whole life, plays in bands. Is like just the really great dude. Was like, well, Joe's doing it what does Joe do that you don't do? Like you can do it if Joe's doing it. Like he knows how to do it. So you do it. And I like my, one of my <laughs> oldest friends like bullied me into starting. So we, I started like, I so I called Joe and was like, how do you sign up for this open mic? And he was like, here's how you do it. Here's who you call. Here's what the deal is. You have to bring two people to buy $7 tickets and order. And I was like, okay. And, uh, and then I was kind of off and running. So that was, I was like 19 when I like started and it was, I was like bad, bad at first. Like it took me a while to get like, to even sound like I was speaking in my own voice. I would talk like quieter. I, I just like didn't, I had no poise on stage, especially doing like re like open mics in the city of Boston where I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then after about a year, I remember being like, Oh, I have enough jokes that I don't have to live in fear when I get up on stage. Mm-hmm.
1: So was it like, but you were writing jokes. jokes. Like it's, it was still still like a similar style to what you would develop into. Could you see the seeds of what you would become in that original or was it dif- very different There's to what some, you ended up I think up there was doing?
0: some stuff that, that felt structurally similar to how I write now, like a kind of like early on uh, primordial version of that. But like the thing that took me a while was – to be more like myself on stage, which I think is like really something that I try to bring out. Like I, I try to have a real gentleness to my standup that feels very like welcoming to people. And, and it took me a long time to get to the point where I, I thought of that as an asset and not like an impediment to making people laugh.
1: Yeah. Uh, cause it, cause it is a gentler style, but was that like representative of what your personality is and was, I mean, I asked that leading question, imagining that it is the case, but like, yeah, was this like what Josh was like off stage that you were yeah. that quieter, more gentle person. Yeah.
0: I'm like a pretty soft guy. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and it like coming up in the scene that I did, I think one thing that, it didn't really necessarily prize a softer presentation or like a a gentler set of subject matter or whatever, but I do think it really helped me marry like my disposition, which is like extremely friendly. And that's when, you know how you'll, you'll meet somebody like a friend of a friend and they'll be like, what's your comedy like? And you go like, that's not a question. Like what answer do you yeah. think I'm going to give?
1: And I say,
0: I now I just say friendly. I'm like, it's pretty friendly. Yeah. Like it's like, come on in. And so the, the like coming up from Boston where people just are like joke, joke. And like, You know, hard hitting, sometimes dirty, always often very fast, um, getting, starting there helped me figure out how to like fuse that with my like natural disposition, which I thought was really cool. Cause I do think if, if I had grown up somewhere with maybe, or come of come of comedy age in a situation with more experimental comedy, I might've, it might've ended up gone in a different direction. Um, maybe I would have been less traditional in terms of presentation, but I do really love like a kind of very standard comedy presentation that is like infused with the opinions and style and personality of the the comedian.
1: I agree. And I think that's what is appealing about what you do is that it has like this structure and style of something that perhaps is, just slightly off like you know you can see that influence of that harder edge joke or those harder edge topics that is that underlies it because it's not like when you say you're you know that you maybe your comedy is friendly that might imply (laughs) to people that it is without edge or that it is without you know um like a a sharper comic perspective Mm -hmm. but those things are Within it, like maybe sometimes disguised within it, but they're definitely there.
0: I mean, that is something I really try to do, right? Like, Mm. I really want to welcome people in, but not like, I don't know. I think a lot uh, about the idea of like be like optimism which is i do i think i identify as an optimist but i think to identify as an optimist it doesn't mean you think everything's good it just means that you think that you know that things are bad and you think that they can be improved you think there's potential for improvement right like um because if you to look at the world and be like this is good i would call that like delusion (laughs) more than optimism but to look at the world and be like i think i think there's something there um is like there's a kernel of something we can save here is, uh, I think, like an act of, of hope. And so I really try to have that in the comedy. But like, you know, I, I the idea of going out on stage and being like, you know how everything's good is <laughs> like. <laughs> not only, I mean, it seems like an almost impossible task, but certainly not one that I feel interested in undertaking.
1: Yeah, Every, you, you guys ever notice that the world's fine and yeah. there are no problems?
0: <laughs> boo! <laughs> That's me to me
1: immediately after <laughs> runs into the audience. Yeah. Boos to boo! From the <laughs> exactly. So Boston, Boston comedy, then New York, right. Is that what happens? So do you move to New York? Is like, do you like move to New York to pursue comedy? Is that what happens?
0: I, um, in 2010, I had a breakup of like kind of my lengthiest adult relationship to date. And, and then, and I also had like a little bit of comedy success on a stage a little bigger than Boston, New England. And, and those two things made me kind of go, okay, now is the time. Like if I'm ever going to leave where I'm from and the, the, where I've grown up creatively and where my friends and family are now is the time to see, to take, to kind of roll the dice and go, is there something in this field that I can seize onto or, or build for myself? Um, and and so I moved in summer of 2011 to New York. So I've been here for about 12 years and it was, uh, it, and and I had to talk myself into it being temporary if I wanted it to be like, I was like, if it, if it goes badly, it's not embarrassing to come home. It means I tried something new and it was exciting, but it didn't suit my needs. And then I can go home and I was teaching preschool and, and tutoring. I was teaching preschool full-time tutoring part-time and I thought, you know, preschool is always going to be there. They're not going to stop having kids in the next couple of years that I'm in New York. So I can always come back, get into a classroom again and, and just like, uh, and go back to that life and do make creative work as like a sidelight. And that really comforted me to be like, my life is pretty good. I think I can do this other stuff, but, uh, if it doesn't work out, if I'm wrong, then I'm not like a loser and I'm not like crawling back with my tail between my legs.
1: But that's an incredible level of perspective to have for a young person like to set realistic expectations about like ordinarily when people you know pack up their bags to you know move to Hollywood or to move to New York to pursue their dreams they do so with this idea of well it's all or nothing boom or bust if it doesn't work out I'm a failure and yet you seem to set these quite you know emotionally uh, intelligently realistic expectations about what your experience may or may not be Like, is that intrinsic to your personality? Was that something that you had to coach yourself into that position? Or was that maybe just something that you needed to, you know, think through to give yourself permission to take the risk in the first place? I think
0: it was a marriage of all those things, right? Mm. Like it came to me pretty naturally to like think, but it took the time. Like at first I thought I'm going to move to New York. And then I would think about the people who I knew who had moved and really taken off and I go, wow, maybe I can do that. And then I thought about the people who came back and I go, well, I don't want to, um, I don't want people to look at me weird. And if I come back and then I go, well, I don't care. You know, like when people move back, I go, it's, if it's better for your life, it's better for your life. And so it took all the kind of steps to process it. it. I didn't like start off from the place of like, Hey, Everything's temporary. Sarah, serra. <laughs> <laughs> I really started off from like, I think I'm gonna give it a shot. And then I was like, well, what does it mean if I fail? And then I was like, oh, it just means this wasn't, this isn't gonna be the long-term path that I'm on. And I I like made peace with that. I had to make peace with that before I moved. But I think I had already kind of dedicated myself to like, I'm gonna quit my job in June. I mean I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save up. I'm going to get ready to go. I'm going to start look like I'm going to start telling people I'm moving cuz there's no that's humiliating, right? To be like I'm going to New York City and then like 3 years later people going, "Hey, what happened to that? Like the thing you were yelling for 8 straight yeah. months." Like,
1: that I would have been embarrassed by.
0: But then I I really had to like paint myself into the corner to go, but then allow myself infinite grace to come back if I needed
1: to. So is that something that you've been able to repeat throughout your life? Do you still take that attitude into opportunities now that idea of, well, I can try it. And if it doesn't work out, then that is like something that I can reconcile myself with.
0: Yeah. I think that, and I think that is the kind of gentle version of like doing it for the bit. Right. Cause the, the like more extreme version is like, yeah, I'll do this dumb thing because it'll be funny, even if it goes badly. And I have like a, a little of that still, although like being being married and having like a a, the, a late thirties physical body, it's taken a little bit out of like oh, whatever. Let it roll. <laughs> There's just like some stuff that is off the table at this point. <laughs> but it is. I do really try to get to the point of like, I you know when 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 I'm presented with something, I I really do take a lot of comfort in the thought of like, how bad? Even worst case scenario, how bad can it be? And, and most of the time when it's like a career choice, you go, Oh, you just regroup and you realign, um, excuse me. That's like, not the stuff that is terrifying to me anymore. So that's nice.
1: Was there uh, like, I mean, because the other thing is like, I mean, you're a human being and like, the truth is that if you're out pursuing a dream and a career that you know, we, we, we all react like in a human way to these totally. things, to successes and to failures. So like you can rationalize it as much as you would like yeah. to, but you're still an emotional human totally. being who suffers the slings and arrows of, you know, what our life might present to us. Oh, yeah. So how do you... Like, how do you balance those things so that you know that you're emotionally responding in the right way to something and intellectually responding in the right way to something?
0: That's a good question. I mean, I do try to give myself like leeway to stomp around and feel crabby if I'm disappointed. But it does also I will with certain kinds of things. Still, and this maybe contradicts myself, I will still try to like insulate myself from certain kinds of failure that I've recently felt, especially where I go, you know, I tried this. It didn't work out the way I wanted. It was a lot of work that kind of led me down a trail of heartbreak. And like, maybe that's, maybe I'm not ready to get back on that horse again. And and so I do think of it as like kind of crop rotation, right. Of like, Oh, I tried to
1: pitch a project.
0: Like I tried to invent a project in my brain and pitch it. And that didn't go. And it was like a two year thing that I, I learned a lot from, but ultimately was like, Oh man, bummer. Um, and then I go, okay, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to focus on like, doing my going to a job and doing that and creating stuff. And then you get burnt out at a job maybe. And you go, I'm going to work on stand-up now because that's something that I can bring to individual audiences at a time and, and feel like you're growing and changing the act day after day. And then you kind of get, you know, you reach a point with a standup where you're like, I guess this hour is done. And then it's like, Ooh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm ready to like tackle this other kind of thing again. And so, I I think like everything having its season is really helpful in the practical way, and then in the emotional way, it is like you. It, I think it takes time. I do have to do a little bit of that, like licking my wounds and regrouping, and and usually, I will try to like get a small win on the board. Um, you know, it, it. it, it I really feel like. As a a person who's in like a wonderful, I, I, my wife is wonderful. I'm in a great marriage, but I do feel like I do the career version of like, you have a serious breakup and you just try to get laid. And it's like, but that is (laughs) like a, like a creative project, you know, where it's like, okay, this big thing didn't work. I'm going to try a small Mm. thing that I know I can do, or that I have a hunch that I can do because I've done it before. And I can do just like to get a win on the board. I like really believe in that of like getting your
1: groove back (laughs) I it's so funny. I was backstage at a gig the other night, and it was it was funny. Somebody was doing the a young person was asking somebody in the room for advice, and they were giving the most cliched piece of comedy advice of all time, which is open with your second best joke and <laughs> finish with your best joke. Yeah, yeah. Right? That was literally what they were saying. Not a not the worst not bad piece advice, of advice right? in the not world, profound, but it is it's practical. No. But you know, when you're first starting out, not a bad way. But that added something to it that I absolutely loved, which was. That if after your second best joke, yeah, you know, you've done a few more jokes and it's not going well, that like there may be no reason to save your best one for last. You might <laughs> want to just you might, might want to just drop it in to have a win. And I was like, you know what? That is also a good piece of advice yeah. because occasionally, you know, there's, there's no point saving it to the end if the four minutes before yeah, just cricket, cricket, cricket.
0: That's so funny, right? Like, what is... Because there's, there's so few art forms where you get more instant gratification. And what they're like is like, is there something smaller than an instant in which you can be yeah. gratified?
1: <laughs> oh, hi. Did you... So it's interesting to me, you're about a decade younger than I am, and I'm interested in comedy generations. Americans are obviously a lot more comedy literate. It's in, in some ways, stand-up comedy is, you know, America's great art form. And, you know, there is a literacy around stand-up comedy and an understanding of stand-up comedy. And certainly in my times in America, the way that American audiences react to stand-up comedy and understand stand-up comedy is something very different to the way that it happens in the rest of the world. Not, not necessarily better or worse, but certainly different. You know, it didn't, it didn't matter where I went. Like sometimes in Australia still, you know, I will do a show or even like in the UK or somewhere, I'll do a show and people might say, this was the first stand stand-up comedy gig I've ever been to, where as when I was in America, I would be like in Alaska or Cleveland or wherever. And they'd be like, every member of the audience would have an understanding of what, Stand up comedy works. How it works, yeah. The structures of it, and
0: there's such a cultural context which I think is changing. That, like, even if you don't go a lot, you've like seen it represented so much, and you kind of know the the put like people know to drink minimum, even if they've never been to a comedy club before. The first time (laughs) they've been to a comedy club, they know that that's like what they're gonna they're gonna get hit with that probably, and they know like you know, you know, the little tropes that feel so American, try the veal, tip your waiters, like all that stuff feels so encoded in the pop culture, um, and art, art, artistic, cultural DNA in America present day.
1: And I think even just the fact that comedians hosted, you know, major talk shows Mm -hmm. and comedians hosted the Oscars, and there was this idea of comedians and how comedy worked as part of it. But did you have... That and like when you started doing comedy, you know, did you have a set of rules by which you guided like, you Ooh. know, like that, you know, like that one I just mentioned, yeah. were there little things that you believed at the start or that you were using as guideposts at the start? So
0: I started, as I imagine you did in a pre-podcast era, and I think that really changed things. Starting to do standup before you could hear people talk mm-hmm. about standup like this. All the time. And so I really learned as I went. And I think like in some ways being uninformed about how it works from the inside, only having seen it from the outside was um, I felt there was a little mimicry at play because I didn't have instruction. And I was just trying to build this machine from looking at it like it's like trying to build a car by walking around a car and then going Mm -hmm. like, okay. Um, I, I think I, I've seen what it does. I've seen yeah, what it looks yeah. like from all angles. Um, I'm going to try that. And, and so I do yeah, think I'm
1: going to guess what's going on. Yeah, inside yeah, 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 this yeah. Metal shell, Right. I know the
0: effect of it, but yeah. I, I guess some kind of engine mechanism, but like we're really winging it. Um, which I think is like, there's this beautiful metaphor for, um, uh, that this is like a, this, God, this is so fucking pretentious that, um, in a, Dave Eggers wrote an introduction to a, 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 one edition of Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And he said, like, reading that novel was like trying to figure out how someone built a spaceship, right? Because it was like, it's like nothing else. and And so I don't think it's quite like that because it is something that everybody's seen. It's such a common thing to have seen. But I do feel like it is the, like, Work a day version of that where it's not like you're trying to to analyze something spectacular that you've never seen before, but it's like, oh, I've watched a hundred I've seen so many hours or heard so many hours of stand up comedy, and now I have to try to build it from the outside. And uh and so I do think there was like a lot of kind of like taking a stab at like reverse engineering it, and then and now people hear everything and they're so inside it that I think like maybe you lose a little bit of that fumbling in the dark that like gets people to uh, a place of like coming at it from their own point of view. I I wonder if that's true. I'm not sure.
1: I mean, it's probably a combination of all those things, but it's a topic I am so fascinated by because one of the things that I miss about like, you know, the open mic scene, you know, as we would have called it in Australia back when I first started is the things that people who've only been doing comedy for six months firmly believe are absolutely true. Oh, yeah. absolutely were not. Like, you know, those things that are the myths that are like religions that are passed from one idiot to another idiot, like, you know, (laughs) as these, you know, real laws of stand-up comedy, whereas these days because of, as you said, so many places where people can hear, you know, professional comedians talk about comedy that perhaps some of those – you know, we live in the more scientific age yeah, yeah, where, yeah. you know, there is more actual knowledge <laughs> from fewer and suddenly these. That's right. <laughs> but I miss a little of that because I love nothing more than a firmly held idiotic opinion about something. Well, there's, I
0: mean, even I, I think it's still kind of old school because there's in where I'm from and like the Boston scene, there were a lot of like rules and regulations that don't necessarily exist other places. Like in it, this is, Almost every gig you would do in Boston, you were expected to like keep your own time, like instead of meaning that like for for listeners, like you know most places now, if you're on the road, if you're at a club in New York City, certainly they they give they flash a light to say like you have X minutes left in your set, and in Boston, especially as an opener, you're you know or a middle act, you are expected to know how long you'd been on stage and how long you had left, but also you were expected not to look at your watch too much. So it was like this weird (laughs) tango that every other place in the country had figured out, like you just have someone shine a flashlight, you flick it twice and then, you know, but like I was out doing like 30 minutes, you know, as a, as a feature act, middle act on a show and just being like fumbling in the dark, like looking at my wrist every three minutes. And that, and like was like, that was one of the, the customs that was, that like felt like, um, it now feels like, uh, you know, sacrificing um, sacrificing a, an animal for a religious purpose. Where you're just like, oh, we don't have to do it like that. We could just wait till it rains.
1: It's it, it is so interesting. That's why I love yeah, going from place to place. One of the things that I found most fascinating when I first went to America and was on the road, you know, doing these shows was this idea that you would be very familiar with, but maybe the listeners are less familiar with, which was this idea of the check drop at the end of the show where you're at a comedy club and like 10 minutes before the end of the, the, like the headliners set, the person that, you know, like, people are meant to be, you know, the, you know, like in the way that the comedy night rolls out, the, you know, the performer who is the feature of the night, who is doing the longest, who is probably the most experienced, who, you know, theoretically is probably the funniest person on the lineup, that as they are building to a climax of their act, there is this inbuilt tradition in these road comedy clubs that everybody gets their check to pay for their mm-hmm. chicken wings and their drinks. About at the exact moment that you would be winding up into the finale yep, of your absolutely. show, absolutely. And you, you were like, "How did this become a thing? Yep. How did this slip through? This doesn't seem this doesn't seem the best way to and, do this." And
0: it's like where yeah. the art form of stand-up comedy, not to be too pretentious about it, intersects with the realities of the service industry and the hospitality industry, yeah. right? Where they're like, "We need to, <laughs> we need to." Turn this room over. That's what it is, right? That's all it is. They yep. go, we need to turn this room over for the late show and, or we need to cl- get people out of here so we can close up. So mm. instead of waiting till the show's over to give you, to give people their checks, it happens now. That's the reality yep. of linear time.
1: <laughs> yep. We're done now. So yep. we, you, you, it was all well and good. You'll just have to deal with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. This we, is the practice. We're, ushering, of we're the getting NFL. ready for you
0: to leave. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we assume there is no better way to do this, and mm-hmm. they don't do it differently everywhere else in the right. world. Or, or if there is a
0: better way, I mean, this is a very American uh, attitude. If there is a better way, we don't care to know about it.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> la, 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 yeah. la, la, la. <laughs> this is our way, and people that have got used to it, this is what we're doing now. So Josh, tell me a little bit about, I ask people on this podcast if they have a life philosophy of any kind, that's the central conceit of the show. And it can be in relation to anything, life, love, laughter, children, dogs, like I, I don't mind. And also it's an appropriate response to say that you don't, but I'm interested to see that if, if you do. Or not.
0: I've, I've really been coming back to this quote. So I was raised Jewish and I'm not an especially observant religious person now but I've been coming back to this quote um that is by Rabbi Hillel I, I this is like from Wikipedia or something a noted Jewish philosopher born in 110 BC um the question and this is I think about this I've been thinking about this a lot which is if I'm not for myself who will be for me if not now when but and if I'm only for myself what am I and that is something that is like I really try to to that it like is a real guiding principle or has become as I've gotten older.
1: Can you talk me through a little bit more, yeah. like expand a little bit more on what you mean, so, how that relates to you personally? Sure.
0: So the middle, the middle part is the least for me. The, the, if not now, when that I think is pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. That's like every self-help be like, there's no time like the present. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> but the, the first and the third, I think are really pivotal for me that if i'm not for myself who will be right so that to me that is like you have to stand up for yourself you can't expect uh you can't lie back and wait for someone to advocate for you and that means in a in a lot of contexts it just means like being open about what you want from a situation professionally personally like really saying like hey this is this is what i'm looking out for because you're you know in many situations you are your most informed advocate and, and have the potential to be your most um, ardent advocate because even when there's, you know, and, and even that can be anything from like, okay, I have this career goal. I'm going to set myself to it and I'm going to tell people that that's what I'm working towards because if I, that's how you get hired for this kind of job. And even in, in like a relationship, right? I mean, this is so, such a, uh, uh, weaselly use of like Judaic wisdom of the ages, but to be like, if, um, my wife and I had Thai food for dinner tonight and my wife had said, Oh, are you thinking about Thai? And if I had not wanted to get Thai, then I could just say, you know, uh, maybe we could have that later in the week. I'm like, not really in the mood right now, instead of just being like, sure. As if that's the only way, um, to do it, you know, uh, to not treat everyone else's like first whim as how you have to live your life. And then if she had gone, oh, but I really am. I think a spicy soup would really help clear my sinuses. I would go, great, let's do it tonight. You you clearly want this in a way that does not bother me. And I'm happy to do it. Um, just So that little level of like, advocate for yourself. And then the, um, the third part, we're skipping over the middle. The third part, if I'm only for myself, what am I? Is like, oh, that's such a... Uh, gut punch right because like if i'm not for myself who will be it's like fuck yeah i'm for me baby and then it's like, hold on wait if that's all you're doing like like what what are you is like so withering and um the uh and i think that's really helpful to think about of like what am i like what do i stand for because you can't just stand for yourself and so it's like what am what am i what do i believe in that's bigger than me and and that is like a question that i I'm like constantly trying to be asking myself, what am I, what can I do that is for others that shows generosity or principle or effort or, you know, or or, um, anything that is
1: bigger than just like, but I wanna. (laughs) Okay, so the small version of that is, like, you know, you, you explained in the first part, yeah. which is spicy soup, yep. right? Like, which is this idea of, I don't feel like Thai food, maybe later in the week, your wife says, uh, yeah, I could like do it tonight. And you think, oh, well, you know, that's actually, it's totally. not all about yeah. me. I'm, I'm happy for, sure. know, for this to be the case. Right. That's a really practical, small example of the first and the third. I agree. Let's skip the second. Yeah, it's yeah, an unnecessary yeah. that's like very, that we don't really I'm, need. And I'm it's also like filler. an extreme procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like. I, like the that rabbi was being paid by the word as well. I reckon <laughs> right, he's cutting right, right. that stuff out, right, <laughs> All right. right, Rabbi Dickens, yeah. tighten it up. That's the yeah. Boston impulse. Cut that middle um, part. There's no punchline. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. That's unnecessary. Tighten that up. You know? <laughs> Just get to the point. <laughs> but I do, so if it's not spicy soup, though, and then we take it into the bigger, you know, yeah. what it is, like what is like that purpose? Like, what is it that is bigger than you? Like when you think about that, what do you think about? I like, I mean, recently this
0: summer, and I don't want to say too much about it with the negotiations ongoing, but like recently this summer, uh, just feeling like being really involved in the writers guild strike and going like some days I'm Tired, And I don't want to get up and pick it or leave, you know, leave the chance. And it's like uh, on the on the picket line. And it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's hot. And it's, it, it's physically tiring. And I don't know, like, you know, there are days where I'm like, I, it would be nice to not do that. But I've really tried to rally effectively. To, and, and this isn't heroic. It's just like a slightly bigger thing than spicy soup. To go like,
1: yeah. you know, I think. This, I, mean, I uh, Josh, I, I asked you. This is no, no, no. You to talk about um, this. Like, <laughs> but it is. It is like a real
0: top of mind example of going like, um, this is, this is a way I can be of service in a way that like I can give something to others right now that is maybe more meaningful than what I wanted to claim for myself on this given morning. And and you can't do that all the time. That's back to number one. But like when you can do it, like when you have the strength or the, you know, the physical fortitude or the ability or the resources or the, the like social privilege or clout or whatever, however you want to put it, I think like figuring out ways to leverage that tour for other people is something that's very meaningful for me to think about.
1: How do you, how do you, feel about this current time? I mean, it's obviously, we're external observers, you know, in Australia to what is happening in America, particularly around the writers, but it's a broader conversation around creativity and the value that people put on creativity in society. And how do you feel more generally outside the practicalities of the the strike and the industry, but just on the value that people put on creativity. We went through a time in the pandemic where literally it was people's creative output that like was as important. Like, I mean, we talk about the healthcare workers and the frontline workers and absolutely heroes one and all, you know, those people. But also everybody sat at home and watched, you know, movies and television shows and consumed podcasts or whatever entertainment read books, whatever it might have been that they did to get through that time. They relied as heavily on entertainment and people's creativity as they did on those other things as well. And yet there seems to be a diminishing value on how people appreciate creativity and artistic output in our society, just on a more broad sense. How do you feel about people's relationship to, to creativity?
0: Oh, Oh, this is such a big question. I like, I love it. Um, I think, I think there are a lot of people that really value it but i do think like with many forms of labor we are at like this a point not a unique point but we have returned to a point in capitalism under and, and here at least it where ev- things are just being shredded for slurry and sold for parts and i think like the people that that do this that do work across so many industries and so many important industries are being um, devalued and divorced. Like not the the Marxist idea necessarily of being alienated from your own labor, but people are being alienated from other people's labor. Right? Like when you order something on Amazon, it takes so much. They they make it so uh, removed from the idea of like. Oh, it gets there in a day. And you're like, well, how? Well, you don't want to think too much about that. <laughs> no. um, and so I really think that there's, there's been this like big top down, maybe not a conscious effort, but like a very successful way to get people accustomed to unlimited access to all the uh, material comforts and pleasures that of, of this planet with, by, tr- by keeping, the like mechanisms and the toll of that like hidden behind a curtain.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, how is such an interesting idea. I mean, I think your insight into that is like really like, uh, I was going to say your insight is very insightful, which (laughs) is the (laughs) most redundant thing to say of all time, but it, it like that, that, insight was so simple and yet so profound that it kind of left me lost for words for a second because All we would need to do to really – like the hiding of the how is the issue that we're talking about most of the time, the hiding of the how. If you had to explain to people, here is this new phone and it does these things and this is – how we are able to get it to you yeah. for, you know, this price, like this, you know, this thing is going to be delivered the next day. And that is very convenient for you. And this is how we can get it to you in one day and get it to you at this price. Your food is going to get delivered, you know, within 30 minutes. And this is how we are going to do this. If we had The, the, the hiding of the how is the thing that makes us complicit in the fact that people are being oh, exploited. Totally.
0: And I don't say that as somebody who's like above it. At all, right? No, like,
1: no, we all are, we all are because they hide the house. They hide away.
0: the how. I feel like the hiding of the how is like we're yeah. gonna write. This is gonna be like our heavily researched, like our empire of pain, our um, dark money. This is we're this is gonna be big. Get ready, the New Yorker.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Stop hiding the house. This is <laughs> the hiding of the steel how. book.
0: But that is so much of it, right? Like, I think yeah. that people want to enjoy all this creative work and i think when probed people especially because i think on the opposite end from that right of like all the entertainment in the world gets beamed into my home uh and i don't think about like i don't have to go to a theater to do it i I, it's it's all on my tv i can do it while looking at a different screen um the 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 other side of that are the way that like many people and like a lot of different mediums are like reaching audiences more directly and people are going, Oh, I'm going to pay you money for this creative work that I like and value. So I think that like, there's something there, right? Like there's a kernel of hope where there are people, so many people going like, yeah, I'm going to, this musician who I love may not have had a record out in, Uh, in a year and a half but i know that if i pay them a couple bucks a month and i i get to like have you know i get to do like an ask me anything or whatever and i get to like hear an old demo then when then that gets them to be able to produce the new album even if they don't have like a big studio deal and i think people when and, and this is a way that like when you're shown what's behind the curtain it gives you an opportunity to it doesn't uh it's a little less like looking at Amazon where you're like, well, I still want that. We're like with, with the, with something like creativity, (laughs) I think you can really say like, okay, if I I want this and, and I'm going to support where I can, you know, rather than like just taking kind of what's given to you. And and I think that that's like really hopeful and inspiring. Like, I mean, there's so much stuff like um, even podcasts, right. It's like, it's a thing that like, is so it's such a direct, immediate medium for people to engage with creativity and hear creative people unmediated saying things that like they couldn't necessarily say being honest about the the practicalities of of creating art that you couldn't necessarily say on TV or you know in a in a big film or even like a major studio released album a lot of the
1: time. Uh, and yet, so this <laughs> is the. Where- <laughs> this is this is the problem right which is that there is an awareness of mm-hmm. it but there is a very boutique niche awareness that's, of that's it fair. and there are and there are major I mean, the, the point is I often like, we get mad at people for, you know, believing disinformation. We get mad at people for not like, you know, understanding these things, but there are major forces at work that are trying to stop people from understanding. Oh yeah, for sure. That's the hardest thing. There are vested interests and those best it's like, I mean, Amazon have a vested interest in not having you ever think about the how and the big studios have a vested interest. And like, you know, when you say, Oh, isn't this amazing? Like I have this service where if I pay $9 a month, I can listen to every song that's ever been written in the entire world. And that company has a vested interest in in you never thinking about totally. how how that works. Because oh, if you yeah. think about how it works, then you eventually work out that somebody's got to be exploited somewhere there. Yeah. So there is, I mean, you described yourself as an you know an, an optimist. Right, here an is the rubber meets the road. And this and that was absolutely what happened. I saw you, you looked at the world, you mm-hmm. found. A very optimistic take, not an unrealistic take, but just you saw, you saw the optimistic part of it this and is, you yeah, focused on that. That's that the was part a real that demonstration of your hope. personality. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh yeah. That is like very me. That's me all day. And it is, mm. but I mean, and, and I think there is the other thing, and, and I imagine you feel this part of it, right? Is like as much, as much as there is a pressure to treat any art, like it's just like, Content, capital C, there is a real electricity and appreciation for like even live performance. Like the, the, what you, what audiences feel coming to a live stand up show. Or I go, I mean, I see a lot of comedy because I'm at a lot of comedy shows working, but I, I also, I go see a lot of live music. And that going to see a live show is like a, a way to tap into this thing that is not just like taking passively what what is or or plucking you know without um without really considering how the the sausage gets made uh and i and i like think that that is such a special thing and my hope is that as we as like you know in in as Spotify continues to be this like global giant and people keep there are people fighting against it to get people a fairer cut of everything. There is this thought of like, people realize how thrilling it is and how special it is to like, go see those bands live when they're in town. And then like, you know, maybe you hear them go, you hear the, the, the lead singer on stage go, you know, we're, we're touring these hundred seat venues we're going all over the country. Um, it really helps us. If you buy a t-shirt, you know, and you go, hell yeah, if I buy a t-shirt, they win, I win. Cause I have a t-shirt, like just being mindful of that in a way that is like pleasurable. And then you, it's kind of a pay what you can, right? Like maybe you can't buy a t-shirt or you, or you don't like the t-shirt while you don't do it, but like hopefully enough people, it like raises the awareness a little bit more that people are excited about the, about the good stuff and, and, and. And then, open to fighting the bad stuff when the fight when the fight hits the streets or whatever,
1: I am interested in what you say about that because I think there used to be this real I don't know. It was, it was almost uncool to be able to like, tell people how it works. You know, like you had to pretend that like, you know, like buy the t-shirt if you want, but I don't know. Right, really, right. right, you know, yeah. like, we well, yeah, yeah, not to even have about a t-shirt, t-shirt yeah. right? Just like,
0: yeah, right? Oh, like that's commercial. That's like, that's like monetizing. And it's like, yeah. no man, th- I mean, in yeah. stand-up, especially as an, as an opening act, I like, mm. there are people that, that pay, they're able to tour as a stand-up because if they sell uh five t-shirts a show on a five show weekend that's 25 t-shirts at $20 per right that's an extra $500 and that gets them the flight or the hotel or whatever it is that's not being covered and that lets them stay in the game and like those wages you know opening act wages are often not good at comedy clubs and uh but it's like that kind of thing that those like economic realities I think people are I think many people are more open to people who like go see, especially bands, comics at that scale are like, because everybody's kind of feeling that crunch. And a a lot of the time, you know, like the UPS teamsters almost went on strike this summer and like United auto workers voted to overwhelmingly and called a strike against the big three automakers. So I think people really, this is my optimism of like people are being squeezed all over, but hopefully that, means there's an increasing awareness that like everybody's getting it and that the band you're seeing at a place that's 200 packed in standing room, that's not there. They don't make Bono money. You know, they're not set for life, (laughs) like living in a mansion, like, like, uh, the, the members, the surviving members of Van Halen.
1: What do you think about the supersizing of entertainment? This has been something I've been thinking about recently, which is so I mean, Taylor Swift, like, and yeah. I'm only using Taylor as an example, sure, right? Sure, like, sure. You know, nothing, nothing in particular one way or the other about Taylor Swift, but like just as an example of something at the moment, which is this super priced ticket, um, you know, a whole bunch of tickets, big tour, like in Australia, like, you know, he, this is sometimes people's entertainment budget for the entire year. So the idea that these big acts are coming in and sort of s- sucking up you know, everybody's entertainment budget for one big ticket to one big event. Do you have, do you think about that? Have you had thoughts around that? It is tough. I
0: mean, I, and I think another part of it on top of the like big artists being able to fill big rooms, right. And, and, and charge big prices are like so many of these venues are now, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, right? I went to see a band a couple of weeks ago. The tickets are $25. That's pretty reasonable. Like, but then there was a $10 fee for each ticket in addition to another um, you know, $3 full transaction fee. But $10 on a $25 ticket yes. is 40%. They're charging a 40% surcharge. That is like it like blew my mind open, right? To be like you what does ticketmaster do they they get 40% of the ticket price for being a website mm-hmm. and the band has to like write the songs rehearse the songs yeah. travel from city to city play the show pay the sound person like that is that is wild to me and ticketmaster gets it for being a website
1: I don't think you understand, Josh. They, they also had to forward the ticket to your phone. Right. Oh, they're oh gonna they going to send charge, an email. They charge you extra for yeah, that. Yeah. They did yeah. Have to do that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know what? I think they're cool. Um,
1: but it is like,
0: and, and I hate to, like, I hate to talk about just to be like capitalism because there's like intersecting problems. Um, but I do think that like these big, these conglomerates and like, I don't blame, I don't blame Taylor Swift for playing football stadiums, but I blame whatever system makes it so hard to get the tickets, right? Like instead of, instead of the biggest fans being able to pay face value for a ticket, there's now whatever percentage gets, just gets hoovered up by bots that then flip them immediately for a 50% markup. And it's like that kind of stuff, like that kind of, there's like the, the primary ruthlessness of whatever live nation. And then there's the secondary ruthlessness. That's like a cottage industry of other people profiting off of those exploitable loopholes. And it really like puts people in a tough spot to go see live music. And I, again, it especially it, it does so much. Like she has so many young fans and it's, uh, and it's like a lot of, you know young young girls and their parents going out and i don't there's like no utility in me being like those girls should get into fugazi <laughs> yeah <laughs> cuz like they want to see Taylor Swift they love Taylor Swift and so yes. it just like the the fact that there's like this whole parasitic apparatus that that for her to bring her music to people it's such it's so hard to opt out of so much of that like you can't there's no like and this isn't, I know this is not her. There's just no such thing as a DIY football stadium tour. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, well, music, I want to talk to you just more in generally about the fact that you love music. Yeah. You reference music even quite a lot in your comedy. Yeah. There's been more than one reference to the Wu-Tang Clan in <laughs> ru of <if you're> <laughs> which I love because I am also a white middle-aged man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. of course I love the Wooten yeah. Clan. <laughs> How do you not? But like, what is it about music that, I mean, I just want to talk to you about what you love about yeah. music. Was there a time that you fell in love with music? Was there a live performance that particularly, Ooh. you know, talked to you or that you responded to talk to me about I, it. I see
0: a lot of live music. Like mm. we, um, I was on the road a couple weeks ago and I, I left on Friday and I came home. I was away Friday, Saturday. I came home on Sunday and my wife and I went to see shows Thursday and Sunday night. And then two nights ago, two nights ago, we went to see we went to see another show. And then I'm, I'm going to one without her next week. And I love I mean, I listen to I listen to a lot of music, probably maybe not more than not more than like a ton of people, but I definitely go out to see live music more because it is something that like gets me out of my head reliably. Like I, I like, excuse me, I like the feeling of being overwhelmed by the sensation of like, being around people, hearing this like emotionally affecting music, stuff that I have uh, other associations with. I like going to see the opening act when I can, you know, when I have time and being like, ooh, maybe there's something here to enjoy. Just the the exploration of it is really exciting to me. But truly the, um, the overwhelming nature of like being in a place where I'm off my phone, I'm not doing work. It's it's a night that I usually it's a night that I blocked off weeks in advance to be like, this is a night that I'm not going to work and and, and, uh, it, and, and I'm going to treat it like this is a night off and I'm going to enjoy it and maybe have a drink, uh, maybe see a friend that I hadn't seen in a while that also likes this band. It's just there's so it really um, makes so much uh, it it does so much for me in terms of like creating a break from comedy and writing and like technology even. And so I really, uh, I, that is the best. And so I, so I try to see mostly like smallish to medium midsize shows. Like, I'm not going to say I'm like in the independent Brooklyn, hardcore uh, metal and hip hop scenes, you know, the, but like, I you know, um, as a kid, my, uh, my buddy, Dan, who I mentioned before would play like, Elks lodges and we would go see like seven bands. And even, even if I didn't like all the bands, I was like, this is cool. This is like seeing something that people are really getting into. And like, there's a, I don't know. There's no mosh pits at comedy shows. Like it really does something to people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I really love it. And I have like a few genres that I kind of am pretty reliably Tickled by that I'm like yeah you get In this wheelhouse and I'm a chump for it I'm an easy mark and then I'll get like Outside that a little bit
1: Do you have a favorite music memory Like is there something that you Like is there one moment in particular That you just look back like if you could go If if there was that capacity To you know go back to that Moment I want to do that again I want To be at that show again I want To experience that moment again Is there one that particularly comes to mind
0: I there was a feeling that I wish I had more access to emotionally. I am from Boston, so I don't have a ton of access to my own
1: feelings, (laughs) but
0: a few years ago I went to see the hold steady, a band I love and have seen many times. And I went with my, my friend, Dan Bulger, who's an incredible comedian and one of my oldest friends in comedy. And, also, there, my wife Maris was she. She comes like every other year to this run of shows they do with me. And this, no, she wasn't feeling. She was feeling a little under the weather. But it was our the our friend Bex who officiated our wedding was also there. And so standing between like one of my oldest friends in comedy and our friend who officiated our wedding, and I just felt I was I was hammered, uh, and I felt so <laughs> overwhelmed by like gratitude for friendship and art and like a creative community and, and feeling like seen and loved by people in my life. And then just getting to like hear this music that meant so much to me. And I was like, so overwhelmed that I was like, kind of, like happy crying in the room and just was like, man, what a beautiful feeling. and and that to me is like, the ideal feeling at a concert is like almost a spiritual, like a, whether it's religious speaking in tongues, ecstasy, or like a, a, the way people describe like a mushroom trip, interconnectedness with the world around you. And that to me is like, wow, if I could, if I could open myself to that feeling more often, I would feel so much I would just feel like healthier, I think.
1: I love the way you describe that. And this, it brings me to, I guess, what the central conceit of this whole show is, which is like what we are and what life is about. Because like, so I personally, I'll just set the table a little and then ask you the question that I'm going to ask you, which is this. Like, I guess that in a vague sense, if you wanted to describe my beliefs about the world, that they're like, you know, mostly scientific in that, I don't understand necessarily the science myself, (laughs) but I subscribe to the idea of trusting experts and trusting science. That is the general guiding principle by which I live. So like, you know, the, the vague sense of, you know, that we're probably just a biological accident in the corner of an infinite universe and a certain set of circumstances came along that meant that we are what we are. And this is what happened. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm on board with all this so far.
1: Yeah, okay. But then you have that moment. You have this moment, you know, with your friends, watching The Hold Steady, like, you know, having this sort of spiritual, you know, connection with people and the universe and the moment and where you are, you know, literally hearing the music of, you know, humanity, like both in a practical Mm -hmm. sense but also in a more philosophical sense. And you start to think what is the meaning of all this? Like, is there a meaning of all this? Like, is there something more than just the pure scientific biological meaning of all this? And you have, as you've expressed a cultural, at least Jewish upbringing, like the easiest way to ask this question as a starting point is what do you think happens when we die? Cause I think that's a good starting point for the broader conversation of you know, what our lives are about. Like, well, you, let's just start with the basics. Like, what do you think happens when we die?
0: I, my general feeling is just like mm.
1: kaput, donezo. So, then well, why is life like this? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a big. <laughs> oh, that
0: a one-two punch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't, because I agree with you. I'm probably subscribed to the idea we were nothing before, we'll go back to <laughs> nothing again, right? but there is so much magic in, in what you're saying in, 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 you know, the art that we make, the music that people make, the food that we eat, the relationships that we have as human beings, that seems just beyond science and beyond, you know, that beyond kaput. So if you are a person who believes in kaput, as I probably (laughs) do as well, how do you explain the rest of it?
0: Oops, sorry. I think I lost you for one second. That's okay. But I was
1: asking a I, very deep and you're philosophical saying, question. <laughs> you yeah, Perfect time to cut out.
0: We got check dropped by technology. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but yeah, I just, I'm interested in how you think about, if you think about kaput as being the end result, how do you think about the magic of what happens before kaput?
0: So to me, I think that gives life an extra magic. And I don't want to say that just in opposition like people who believe in afterlife wrong me right but I do think the way that I because I think when people um believe firmly in an afterlife right there is this idea that you live in a way that justifies that and I think you can take some of those same lessons but like without the end part you're living in a way that justifies the now right living in a way that is like in in line with values and like brings joy and community into the world and does, you know, looks to provide for others as well as yourself. Because I think if there's nothing, but we're here anyway, then like, we might as well be like really here. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that's like such a drugs thought and I'm not a drugs guy, but I do really, I feel like when people describe like mushroom epiphanies to me and they're like, you gotta take the drug, take the hallucinations, get it. I'm like, I don't know i'm kind of there with you like i hear you i don't doubt what you're saying and because i do really feel like we're all here for each other um and and that is like there's just so much uh capacity for beauty and joy in our lifetimes that is not equally accessible to everyone through the unfairness of um you know sometimes science but oftentimes the conditions that humans create for one another and i think like alleviating those bad conditions and making things feel more beautiful making people feel more um connected to one another is like a really lovely endeavor and it takes a lot of forms
1: uh when are you at your worst
0: oh josh god i am okay at airports, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm definitely, like, I get a little ugly at airports where I'm just like, who is this guy? Because an airport, mm. like, really lays you. People say that you're honest when you're drunk, right? Like, oh, that's the real you. No, it's like you're honest when you just found out your flight's getting delayed for three hours mm-hmm. or canceled entirely. That's, like, a real test of the of the human character. Um, but spe- more specific to me, one thing that that puts me in a bad way is when, when I think someone is when someone wants something for me and they're trying to present it like they don't, or like they're doing something for me because I think I I try to be like a very open person and to be like accessible and, and easy to approach. But I think when, when I feel like someone is trying to like trick or manipulate me into something, there's something I don't like about myself where I'm like, this person thinks I'm a fucking rube. And like, it's probably not that they're probably just like, that's how they operate. But I take it very personally the Michael Jordan with the iPad. <laughs> I took
1: that personally. Yeah. I'm going to remember. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And I took that personally and I took that personally. And then I took that personally. You take a lot of things personally, yeah. Michael Jordan. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> why I have six rings <laughs> because yeah. everything I is an to me. <laughs> yeah. And that person didn't really do that thing, but I imagine that they yeah. did. And then and I, I took, took that personally. personally.
0: I took my own, the thing I imagined personally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I love that you brought up airports though because I have a theory that American airports have been invented as part of a like you know uh, the 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 famous prison experiment mm-hmm. you know yes. th- this is there is a a the vibe of American airports that are, they've been set up to test the limits of human behavior because That's not on you. That is the ultimate example of something. It's the classic capitalist thing, which is that they – set they take us all into a place where we have no more control yeah. and then they pitch us against yep. each other it makes it makes us hate the people around us yep. it makes us t- make everything personal take everything personally none of it is our fault there are lines where they separate us all there are special privileges for people it is the Ooh. ultimate example of you could make this easier for all of us at every not? step but you have chosen not to and then you get us to blame each other and fight it's each brutal. other so We're distracted from the fact that it's actually the system that is wrong.
0: The the moment that gets me lately (laughs) is, excuse me, I, I, um, I'm rebuilding my airline status from a place of zero through the pandemic. And, uh, so I'm in boarding group, let's say four a lot. So this is, or let's say I'm in boarding group three. We'll say three. So one boards, I go, there's no hope of one. I'm still sitting two boards I go okay my ears are my ears are tingling I'm ready to hear 3 I they they call boarding group 3 and it takes me I have to push through a protective shell of boarding group 4 <laughs> that they have made encircling the line because if boarding group 4 if they're the last one now all of a sudden their bag goes under the plane instead of in their overhead bin right and that's not their fault they're just trying to get to visit their cousin mm-hmm. or they're trying to get to their work conference and and the system has been created so that there are limited resources in the overhead bins um but I, I get like, so I'm like, why, why are they doing this? And it's like, they've, we're, it's like exactly what you said. We're being pitted against each other because they decided to charge money for bags. So we all bring our bags to the gate. And then at that mm-hmm. point, nobody wants to check them because we all have them. But there's not enough space for them all. And it really, <laughs> I like, it, it's, I like come, I, I go outside myself with like, Just not rage, but just an annoyance. Like I vibrate with annoyance of like four comes after three. They haven't said three yet. And it's like, nope, but they don't want their whole day, like their plan for the day shot by having to wait at this or maybe get their bag lost after waiting at the baggage claim for half an hour. And so like, I get it, but I am like, "Ah!" it is. uh, And it's so petty, but it like really, it, it's not even that I think it's a petty thing to, be annoyed about because it's annoying but the the like temperature that my blood reaches and like the cartoon <laughs> steam coming out of my ears is like i don't recognize this person
1: uh now i'm now notoriously early to everything because i realized at some stage that um, and I've built in a reward system now to things where I were like, you know, if I get to something early, I'll give myself a treat, yeah. you know, like I'll go and get a coffee or I'll like a, have a cake or something. Oh, my dog's decided they need to, hang on. Just... <laughs> no problem. Dog, dog. I had to bring in a reward system to myself. And the re- the reason was, it just, the reason I bring this up is it speaks to what you were talking about, which was I discovered that I was at my worst the aspect of my personality I did not like the most was when I was under time stress. Sure. If I am running late for something, I and I tried for years to just be better when I was running late, to not have that stress in my system. And I just realized I could not do that. I just, there is an aspect of my personality in the same way as when you're at the airport and you know the rationalization of all yep. those sort of things, but it still has that effect on you yeah. regardless. Yep. And that's that's me running late. If I am running late for something, I become that person. I understand so I that completely. To, I had to change my entire life and put in a whole new thing where I was just like, you know what? you go to something early and you build in a reward for being early because this is the only way that you can never be. And on the rare occasions that now, when something goes so terribly wrong that I am still late, I am now actually able to, to be okay with that because I know that I have gone, I have done everything that I could have possibly done to be
0: early. Was there an element in your like irritation at being late Mm. that you're like, oh i blew that yeah. i blew it i yeah. i'm the one that did this i'm gonna inconvenience mm. myself or someone else yes. and it's on me and that right when you leave because there is something about it when you mm. leave 30 minutes early and you're still running late you just go like hey oh, well, what i couldn't have no reasonable person could have done more than i did no one can be mad at mm. me i can't be mad at myself we all gave i gave it my best
1: shot for all of mm. us Uh, The other thing was living in L.A. for a while because nobody cares about people being late in L.A. because the traffic is so reliable that everybody's just like, oh, you're an hour and a half late. I guess that's what happened today. Yep, Right.
0: (laughs) That does. Right. It is a different a different kind of punctuality, like where you can't Uh, expect uh,
1: it. This is not my question. I like to attribute this question. Kurt Brunella asked this of Pete Holmes on his podcast, but I love this question. So I am now using it uh, as a question to ask you, Josh Gondelman. which is this, would you prefer to know if you had to choose one or the other, would you prefer to know when or how you died? Oh,
0: I guess when. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the rationale is if you knew how you would think you would be obsessed with that thing Mm -hmm. and could never avoid it. You would know. And and you, but you would have no idea when, like if it was like water or like even drowning, you go, well, maybe I avoid the sea and you, Mm. but you don't know you could go in the sea for years and never have it affect you. But knowing when I think gives you at least a clock it's I'd rather not know either I think but if I had to know one I would take when because then at least I go okay well I know I've got this much time left and I can use it or not how how I want or not I can squander it all but I'm not there's nothing else to fear except not maximizing the time that I have
1: so I'm going to give you two options now, which is like, if it was a short period of time or it was a long period of time, do you think it would substantially affect the way that you live your life? So say it was five years versus 50 years, like you find out that you die in five years or you'd find out you die in 50 years. Do you substantially change the way that you live based on that information? I think I do. Hmm.
0: I do. I think, um, in five, if it's five years, I think there's stuff that I put off that I, that I stop putting off. I think I'm like more on top of things. I'm, you know, the kind of thing where I'm like, oh, maybe I should, we can, we can take this trip another time because like this work thing came up and I should really do that. That goes out the window. Um, and, and, and putting off long-term things. Um, and f- yeah, I think that is, that is the answer. There's less, there's, there's stuff that I stop putting off that I think I would enjoy that. I think that I, on some level feel like there will always be time for that. I, that I deprioritize.
1: Um, what is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever had? I love a bad piece of advice, yeah. but like the best or worst. Oh, I'm trying or to... both. Um, ugh. I got.
0: I got this advice, from a. I'm trying to think the 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 most insulting piece of advice I ever got. Okay, was I was opening this is new
1: category, but I like it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's like because it's not the worst advice. Like it didn't lead me astray, but it did make me feel bad. Um, Yeah, okay. I was opening for this this comedian. This is years ago. If he's truly, if he's still alive, he would never remember me. But he um he he worked with. Props and I we did two shows together, and at the the Comedy Connection in downtown Boston, big huge comedy club. And he, um, after the first show, I was a little tentative. It was my first time hosting at this big comedy club, and I was very excited but very nervous. And I did ma. And he, after the show, he goes, "So um, where do you where else do you work?" And I go, well, uh, "Here and there." And I named a couple of places. And I go, "But I'm trying to like break in slowly. A little. I've been doing comedy a couple of years. I'm trying to break in slowly, not get out over my skis." Um. Get, wait for till I'm ready to really put myself out for certain opportunities. And he goes, yeah, that's a good idea. You got to bring something to it. A little energy, a little charisma. Nobody wants to see a man, 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 man on stage. <laughs> and then just, I was like, so wounded. And I, <laughs> and I, but I was like, you know what? This guy's experienced. He's a showman. Mm-hmm. He, I, so the next, um, the next show I went out and was like, I'm gonna give it more energy. I was like a little timid and I'm gonna project outward and like really put on a show for the people. And I did much better. I felt like much happier with it. And uh and I um felt good coming off stage. And I, I went to him and I said, Hey, thanks. I tried to be generous. I said, Thank you for that advice. I think it really helped on the late show to perform with more energy. I try, I really tried to give it that energy. Like you said, and he looks at me and he goes, it takes time. And I was like, Oh, this motherfucker. And so I'm sitting watching the late show. Cause I have to close it out. And I'm now like seething. Cause I went from like wounded, but like fair hit, right? Like yeah. he, he hit me in a place that I was vulnerable and I felt wounded by that. And then the second time when I had done well and, and the feature had had, not quite as strong a set on the late shows he had on the early show. And I was like, so it is, I did bring something to this that I wasn't before. And I felt competent. And for him to then use that to like twist the knife, it's like, Oh, he doesn't want to help me. He wants to hurt me. And so yeah. I'm watching him and it's a bad, it's a bad crowd. And I did fine. I, I'm sure if yeah. I watched the tape now, I would drink poison, but I did fine yeah. in the moment. And he, he's eating it. Um, he's like really doing bad. And, uh, uh, friend of mine who booked a comedy club sits down next, came in late and sits down next to me. He's a comedian and comedy club booker. And he said, "Um, what do you think of this guy? And I didn't want to be petty. So I was diplomatic. I go, you know, he really, they really liked him on the early show. And uh, we watched for 10 minutes and uh, my friend goes, yeah, not really for me. And I go, Oh, deeply not for me. (laughs) There couldn't be less for me. And he's still not, he's still struggling a little bit. And he, he goes, he's got like 10 minutes left and he pulls out his prop trunk from behind him on the stage. And I remember I turned to my friend and I go, this is, I'm so excited for this because he thinks he's going to get him with the props and he's not going to get him with the props. And I watched him struggle with the props for another 10 minutes. And I just felt like such petty vindication, (laughs) but I'll never forget, uh, more energy. Nobody wants to hear you. Ma, 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 ma.
1: <laughs> well, that's. I mean, I understand. Like, of course, a prop person said that to you because, totally. of course, props are the opposite of that. Yes, right? props are the person who says this needs a hat upon yep. a hat upon and a hat. And there's no. because like, you just go ta da. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. You need more ta da, not ma 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 ma. I toured very early in my career this with a guy who and he was lovely not in this not 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 none of the kind of negative energy sure. that so i don't want i don't want this to sound cool he was a lovely guy but um, his big closing thing was he would do a tina turner impression at the end of the show and like to make that effective he would have to wear this lycra sort of yeah sort of T- tight Lycra, mm-hmm. Tina Turner-style suit underneath sure. his suit for the entire set. Wow. So he would then take off his suit suit <sighs> and rev- put on this wig and review and commitment. do this. Like, such commitment. And for most of the run that we did together, he killed. He was a very, like, crowd-pleasing act. Not like the height, not the height of clever comedy, but, like, if you're a crowd on a night out just wanting to be entertained, he was really, really good at Great. it. And then just hit that one night that for whatever oh. reason they were not into him oh, no! and all I could think was he's still like I mean <sighs> you, you, you're wearing the suit and you know that that's not going to work yep. like and it didn't oh. but the fact that you've had to wear this horrible sweaty yep. lycra suit and because of course you still get to close with it because you've Bothered putting on the fucking suit. Right?
0: You know, I <laughs> like, it would have been amazing if he'd done the thing of maybe you don't wait till the end to yeah. do your best joke
1: and right. just do that in the middle. <laughs> and then and then have to put back the suit back on, which I would have loved. Oh like, my god. <laughs> what a bit
0: there was this guy when I started, maybe my the end of my first year I don't know, the end of my first year in Boston, there was this guy who would come out on stage with a guitar slung over his back. And this was a club that had like showcase sets. So you would, you'd only do about seven minutes. And every time I saw him, probably over a period of months, I saw him four or five times. He never played the guitar. And I thought this is, the most incredible anti-comedy bit I've ever seen to just wear this guitar and never address it, never play it. But apparently the, the story behind it was that he had been, banned temporarily from performing at this club because he had this musical closer that would kill, but he always went way over his time. Uh, And so when they let him back to perform, they invited him back to perform. He would bring the guitar and then he would see, there's the one club in Boston that had a light that flashed. He would see the light that said one minute left and he would freak out and just close his set without doing the closer. So it inadvertently created this like incredible tension that was never addressed or burst. And I thought it was like this brilliant thing he was doing, but it was completely the circumstances of him not wanting to get in trouble again. <laughs>
1: oh, man, I love that so much. Um, uh, okay. Hy- just the hypothetical question. You don't need to do your 10,000 hours. You literally just... Wake up one morning and you have this talent, any talent, any talent in the world, you can interpret it however you would like, but what would you love to be able to do without having to put in the work to be able to do it?
0: Oh, there's a few, I think I would love to be a really good dancer.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what style of dancing? Is there a particular style of dancing that you would like to be good at or just general dancing? Wedding. <laughs> Wedding dancing? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Like you mean like bridal dancing, people on the dance floor, wedding DJs, like I want to,
0: I wish I could be a guy Mm. that like at an event where there's a dance floor, people go, look at him. He's got the moves and I'm so self-conscious about dancing. I'm not the least rhythmic person, but I don't have any moves. So I think like there are other things that like guitar, skateboarding that would be cool to, to master, but I don't feel, I wouldn't feel like I'd earned it, but wedding dancing, I wish I were just the kind of guy that had like five or six little wiggles that people would respond to. Um, that I, I just feel like it would round out my whole thing. (laughs) Oh
1: no, I, I get that. I reckon that's a good answer. No one's ever said that before. I I, I love dancing. I love people who can dance. I admire it like any sort of dancing. I think I find it very impressive, but so when I first started doing comedy, my part-time job, very good part-time job for someone who was starting out doing stand-up comedy, was I was also a wedding DJ. In that brief period between, you know, when when I say wedding DJ, DJ is like the term DJ is what they said, but it was really just playing a bunch of CDs oh, off sure. a list that you know the the approved list. Yep, you were now replaced with a Spotify playlist essentially <laughs> yes. would be the thing, but this was back in the day where like a lot of the, the, the microphones that would be used for the speeches and whatever. So you, you were kind of the whole thing. So you'd be there for the whole, and I love nothing more than for me, it was like binge watching an entire relationship, oh, like going to a beautiful. wedding, yeah. seeing the speeches, yep. seeing the people who dance, all the personalities. I loved it. I loved the whole thing. What Funny an, stories. What an intimate this, thing
0: to get to, to like be a fly right. on the wall for over and over. Cause it's sometimes you're like a plus one to the wedding of someone that you don't really know. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you get that people watching, but it's, you still feel like out of place. But when you're a wedding DJ, you're perfectly in place as an observer.
1: Oh, it, hidden in plain sight. Beautiful. And you get to see everything like from like from fancy you know hundred thousand dollar weddings where the best man mistakes it for the you know the bucks night and makes the most inappropriate speech in front of like you know these things through to like literally I know this sounds like a bit and like, but this is not a bit, I think like, this is literally a thing that happened one time, the bridal waltz that I had to play, play, p- play for the, it was U2's. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which I, to this day is the greatest <laughs> bridal waltz of all time. That's, that's right there
0: on the face. Cause there's songs uh, right. that get played at weddings that are like not romantic songs, but are kind of staples. Mm. That one is like, that comes right out and yeah. tells you what it is.
1: Yeah. Right. It's right there. Um, Beautiful experience though, but I was always impressed by the people that like the unassuming uncle or auntie or whatever who would just like get up from the table and then suddenly would be doing this incredible like swing dancing or whatever in the middle of the dance. It's it is it's like the old gunslinger who doesn't want to like you know get into a gunfight. I don't want to want to. And then suddenly you're like, oh my god, I'm pressed into dancing. But their reflexes are there. (laughs) <laughs> it's really good stuff. Oh, that's beautiful. I um, need a couple more questions, Josh Gond- Gondelman, and then we'll be done. Firstly, what can we plug for you? Like, what can people, you know, look for? Obviously, your comedy albums, yeah. I highly recommend. Thank people you. can check those out. But what else? And then they-
0: I've got a couple dates on the road in the US um coming up is there a place where yes. that,
1: like this is what i like to ask um yes. people yeah yes um, go
0: on so my website joshgondelman.com has kind of a repository of um albums and book and tour dates and some other stuff but i also write uh, a newsletter every monday called that's marvelous and it's full of pep talks some to readers some to just people that i uh, that have not asked for it or items that have not asked for it. And that I, all my tour dates are there when I write, you know, do little freelance stuff. If I write something for the New Yorker or New York magazine, I'll link to that. I link to like maybe a song that I'm interested in that week. And so just like, kind of it's, it keeps you in touch for it's for a, a repository for all your Josh Gondelman news, but it also is, I think it has value beyond just figuring out what I've been up to week to week. I think there's like, I really work hard on it.
1: That sounds perfect. Thank what a great like place for people to go if they're really um, interested in what you're doing. That sounds ex- exactly what I was looking for. So yeah, that's, that's great. exactly that's, it. That's, yeah, nice. You can, there's a place you can go and find out all that you, that you need it's to know. It's informational,
0: but I, I try to have it be more than just a mailing yeah. list so that people, even if they're not, not in a place that I'm coming to, to do live shows, can still enjoy something week to
1: week. Well, that's also good for me, though, because now that I'm off all the socials, I do miss my kind of Josh and writing. So now I'll be able to go and, you know, consume that in a place that isn't part of the big infrastructure. I can just go straight to the source. This is what I
0: like. I love a newsletter. Honestly, I subscribe to so many because I like it's it's almost like stand up where you're just like, I want to see what this person's been thinking about. Like this person whose yeah. brain I like, I want to see what they're, they're on about
1: lately. And so watching I, or I mean, reading yeah. or thinking about or what's yes. Yeah, I agree. I love totally. that sort of stuff. So two questions and then we're done uh, on my desk. I used to have a little piece of metal with my, the closest thing to an inspirational slogan that I've ever had. It would just ask a simple question, uh, which was what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? So I'm going to ask you that question, Josh. If you knew you could not fail, if success was guaranteed, what would you attempt to do?
0: Oh, if success was guaranteed, what would I attempt to do? I think it would have to be a dangerous physical feat. That's the kind of stuff that I really shy away from. And so I think it would be like, I guess like, I mean, Climb, I guess like climbing Mount Everest would be pretty spectacular, but even just jumping off something real high. But like, that's the kind of thing that appeals to me, like doing something. Cause that's, I really resist doing things where like falling is going to be a big deal. And, <laughs> and so I would say like that kind of big ambitious, let's say climbing Mount Everest, just because you kind of, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe something good, less less environmentally yeah. catastrophic. Let's say hiking the whole Appalachian Trail in the United States.
1: Okay. Well, this last one, you can take out all social responsibility. Okay, thank Very you. Very much a hypothetical question. This final one. So you don't have to do anything good for humanity. Okay. It's, it's going to be a time travel question. Please. So like- this is what I like to say to people, a return trip on a time a time machine, forward in time, backward in time. But what you do not have to do is fix climate change. You you do not have to kill Hitler unless your particular passion in life was always to kill yeah, Hitler. Yeah, yeah. That is fine. I don't want to rule it out, but like we have the technology, we'll send someone else back to kill Hitler yeah. if that's what we need to do. Like you just get to do this for Josh Gondelman. Okay. Where would you go? For, oh, I, and you don't have to worry about all the... Ramifications of butterfly flaps and swings, or sure. That, none of that. Just this what do I want to be at? Hypothetical. Yeah. Where do you want to go? Yeah. Forward or backwards? Anywhere you want to go. I mean what would you do?
0: This won't, this is not the real answer, but my first thought is truly I want to be, I want to go back in time to the moment when they invented the functioning time machine. <laughs> 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 and just watch how psyched they are. Um ooh but in that similar feeling of like collective exhilaration i kind of think it would be cool to watch the moon landing live right uh-huh i want i i think what we've so much of what we've been talking about right is being a part of a big collective moment and that's something that is getting so fractured and i think like being present for something that like people use as a yardstick for um where were you when this happened throughout their whole life without like a president being assassinated. It feels like a real thrill. And it's not like, you know, the answers could be like, Oh, I'd want to be at Woodstock. Or I'd want to see the Beatles play on Ed Sullivan. But it's like, I think being a part of this thing that is like so globally, uh, and, and for no particular real, the, the upshot was just like, well, take that Russia.
1: <laughs> I know, but it was an example worldwide of what it is that perhaps we were capable of. Yeah, right? that, And it was that like, we, all... that there was, oh, sorry, yeah, it was, it was, well, no, it, I mean, I understand what you're saying, which was all over the world. Yeah. I mean, obviously there was a the space race element yes. of it anyway, there was a tension on it, but it was a global moment that everyone went, wow, like a human being is walking on the moon.
0: That's, and we, I mean, what a thrill to get to see Stanley Kubrick's greatest work as it premiered. No, 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 I mean,
1: obviously, um, obviously, you know, to be in that studio (laughs) that day.
0: (laughs) But, but like, what a thing, like it had never happened before. And to just be like, wow. Like I would want to be like, I would want to be a part of that moment of people knowing that that happened and, and following that story. And like, cause that is, I mean, it was truly a national thing, but it's like a also, yeah. Like you said, human ingenuity did something that, that humans had never done before. And like, you, you don't, we don't have that many of those moments in such a legible, visible, iconic Way like you don't get to see when someone develops a groundbreaking vaccine. There's not like a moment of like, "Wow, we all were there." It's like a few people in a lab, and you go, "I think we did it." And and so just like that, what an exciting, um, what an exciting thing! To but
1: I mean, at. also, we, it's it's at that point where those things are still miraculous. We become so used to miraculous things in our lives now because you know, the, the famous, I mean, it's such a cliche now that there's more technology in your phone that you carry around that there was in the rocket that went to the moon. Like it, but But we are, it's never taken me to the moon. (laughs) Right. Well, but you know, I'm in Sydney, Australia and you're in New York and we just had a conversation for nearly two hours where we could look at each other. Pretty spectacular. Is pretty spectacular yeah. and I think we take it for granted. Absolutely so the true. idea that you could go back to a time where that wasn't taken for granted.
0: Yeah. Where like everybody yeah. was psyched for this new Everyone just technology.
1: went, oh, Wow. Oh, oh, this is yeah. wow. We we did it, guys. Well played. <laughs> we well am not concerns. really sure why, but we, yeah, we did it. it. <laughs> I hope they get back. I hope they make it back. We don't. We no one's ever come back from the moon before. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what's the sequel like, uh, Josh? <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. It's been a great um, pleasure to have this chat with well, you. And this I'm was really such a that you, such.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off because we're half the All world right. away. But
1: we're yeah. That's right. Exactly. It's not perfect <laughs> technology yet. It's so pretty, pretty you, yeah. um, no. Thank you so much. This is such a
0: wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time to to chat.